Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1960 Ingmar Bergman film, The Virgin Spring. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing great. Barrett, uh, this is, I think, I'm going to use the word only, only our third Bergman movie we've talked about. So we watched Persona, we watched Scenes from a Marriage, and I don't think we saw we've watched anything else together. Right. Um so we're going to talk a lot about Ingmar Bergman today. Um, what is your history with this film? Where did this fall into your experience of the the Bergman canon? Yeah, this, um, you know, I, I went on kind of a Bergman run several years ago, um, trying to catch up with stuff. And so, you know, earlier on, I'd seen The Seventh Seal, I'd seen Persona a while ago, and then maybe, maybe eight, ten years ago, I did the the Death of God trilogy, the three films that come right after this one. And I did Virgin Spring as well. So probably, like I said, probably about 10 years ago or so, I did I did the run of those of those four films. Um, so this is the first time that I have seen this. Um, I'm a big fan of The Seventh Seal, um, which we're, we'll get into as we talk about this, because this there's some relation there. Mm -hmm. Um uh, I Persona is one of my favorite movies of all time. I love scenes from a marriage. So one of my takeaways from this is I need to just maybe take a summer and just spend a lot of time with Ingmar Bergman. Although I, I also feel like that could be a, a rough summer at the same time. Um, but, but, uh, I am, I am definitely on board with questions he's interested in talking about. Now, one of the interesting things reading about this movie um, has to do kind of with where Bergman is in his career in 1960. Um, so many things I read or things I watched on Criterion talked about Bergman in transition. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, that that this is this is maybe the end of a certain kind of movie that he makes, um, and it's transitioning to another. Can you talk a little bit about like like what is the nature of that? Especially you having watched the three things that come after this. What is the nature of Bergman in transition? Where's he at in his career? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, one of the things we say is, you know, Bergman started his first film started in 1944. So he's he's pretty far along in a career that ultimately uh, resulted in 49 films. So, yeah, he had built uh, had built kind of an art house reputation through the 1950s with films like you've already mentioned, The Seventh Seal, uh, Wild Strawberries, Smiles of a Summer Night, The Magician. Um, but and he'd worked uh, during that period mostly with a photographer, uh, cinematographer, cinematographer by the name of Gunnar Fischer, um, and so the the he, a lot of a lot of the films that he made were um, largely interior films, um, and he also did from time to time he did historical dramas, for example, like the Seventh Seal, as you were going to point out. Um, kind of a variety of uh, kind of a variety of genres, but all sort of within a kind of you could say sort of a Swedish house style, uh, especially in terms of cinematography. Um, kind of a variety of themes, but he was seen by the time you come to something like um, uh, like the Virgin Spring, he was seen as somebody who would have kind of dark and weighty themes. Um, there would be landscapes. I said there's interiors, but there also be, would be landscapes. And especially sterling performances from his actors. He was kind of building up his his stable of, of actors. So people would expect from Bergman something serious. I, I wouldn't say ponderous, but certainly something with uh, with with these kind of weighty themes. And when he got to the Virgin Spring, the the response was um, 
1960, right? That's the same year that Breathless comes out. Think about the difference between this film and Breathless. Mm-hmm. And and the Cahiers critics in France thought, oh, this this film actually represents a step backward for Bergman. It's actually a, a decline. It's not he's not kind of breaking new ground. So in that respect, it was kind of both a culmination, but also sort of an, an, an ending in a way. In Sweden, the film got kind of mixed reviews, and a lot of the mixture was around the fact that Sweden was a still is a fairly secular society. And the feeling there was, oh, <laughs> we're not interested in these death of God themes or, or, or the, the question of faith themes. We're not interested in those things. We've already kind of settled, settled that. Um, and of course, that was an issue that was still very important to Bergman as he's kind of wrestling with his own faith. So in a sense, what he decides after the Virgin Spring is Bergman never does another historical drama. He never does anything set in the past. He figures out ways with the three films that we've mentioned a lot of Persona, he figures out ways to kind of um, find different forms for his own interior drama. And so the films that he starts making in the 60s are often kind of called chamber films because they're, and of course he has a background in theater because they are kind of small, intimate dramas that are really getting at these very personal issues as opposed to trying to throw them on a larger canvas. You know, whether it's uh, whether it's the, the historical past or whether it's a, a, some other kind of social setting, uh, he becomes much more restricted. He actually finds um, the, loca- the, the, the island, uh, his own island of Pharaoh, on which he actually then films many of his movies after this. So it's kind of, in a sense, Bergman figuring out how he's going to make these more personal dramas. And of course, he doesn't write the screenplay for for The Virgin Spring. He has a collaborator on that. But I will note uh, one very curious um, it, uh, feature of this film, and that is three of the names. Uh, Ingiri is the feminine version of Ingmar. Um, the reference to Father Eric, Bergman's father's name was Eric, and he famously had a major, a very difficult relationship with his father. And Karin is Bergman's mother's name. Uh, so for, for what it's worth, those are kind of those personal elements infused into the film. Well, and what's interesting about about Karin, too, is um, in the source material, Karin is the name, but it's the name of the mother. Right. And so so he is moving that name intentionally to a different place here, yeah, which is yeah. interesting. So so it, so it sounds like um, part of the, the crit, uh, critique of this movie is that it was sort of like you've already kind of trod this ground, move on. Um, now, what's interesting about this, I'm going to say from the beginning, uh, I watched this movie and really liked it. I watched it again. I read a bunch about it. I love this movie now. Like, like this is, um, at the end of this conversation, I want to have a talk about this, like, like where this kind of ranks in Bergman movies, because like I said, I'm a huge fan of The Seventh Seal, but there's a degree to which I think in some ways I almost like this better uh, for some, uh, for some particular reasons. Mm-hmm. Now that could also be because I haven't seen the Seventh Seal in a few years, and if I watch that again, I'd be like, "Well, no, actually, this is, this is great." <laughs> but one of the things that I found interesting is it, and, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but my interpretation a little bit was like when Bergman made this movie, he really loved it and thought it was great, and it was so heavily criticized that he kind of turned his back on this movie a little bit. Like, it sounds like when he writes his biography or biographies, he almost ignores this. And he's like, well, this is, this is too much leaning on 
there's too much Kurosawa in this. There's too much these other things. And I'm wondering, like, is Bergman somebody who listened to his critics too much or or maybe it's a, a film a filmmaker who really did pay attention to what his critics said? Because my impression that when when he made this was he was he had really strong, positive feelings about it. But pretty quickly, he, he kind of abandoned uh, supporting this movie. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, that, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I don't know how quickly he turned against the film, but I mean, you know, you asked the question about Bergman's critics. I mean, it, it kind of depends because Bergman was in, um, he had a kind of a, a longstanding um, feud with the studio. So, and, and, and maybe studio executives are not the same as film critics, but, he, you know, he had no trouble kind of taking on uh, the, the studio heads when they criticized him for his the budget demands and all that. Um, I, I, but I do think that he did listen to people like the Cahiers critics. I don't know how much you listen to the Swedish critics, but I think probably what happens, Sam, is that, you know, we talked about this a minute ago being a transitional film. I, I, I think that maybe he himself had some doubts about whether he had found the right form mm. in which to express the themes that he wanted to engage. Um, and, you know, he says that, you know, you, you alluded to this. He says he called it a, a lousy imitation of Kurosawa. And, of course, there's one particular scene that you can say, oh, that's straight out of, straight out mm-hmm. of Rashikon. Um, but I, 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 th- I, think that, I think that for him, it, and, and one of the reasons people say that he engaged uh, a screenwriter um, who he had worked with before, uh, and she, uh, Ula Isaacson, and she was somebody who had actually written a highly regarded historical novel set in medieval times. You know, some people say that he used the screenwriter because he wasn't quite sure himself how he wanted to um, engage the themes of the of the story. Now, he'd been interested in adapting the story for about 20 years, and he thought about this for, for a long time, so I was long just dating things. But I suspect that he went into this then with a certain amount of trepidation about whether this was really how he wanted to engage the, the themes. And so then when I think when the responses sort of lined up with maybe what was his internal um, concern, uh, per- perhaps that's that's part of it. Now, the other thing that happens is, is in, around this time he gets married and uh, his new wife, who is a concert pianist, is very, <laughs> makes some changes in Bergman's life. Uh, and I, I'm going to tie this in in a minute. Uh, and and one of those changes she made was Bergman had characteristically worn a, a French beret since the 1940s. And the beret goes away. She does away with the beret, makes a lot of other changes in his life. And I'm wondering, this is just my psycho psychological uh, speculation. I'm wondering if what also went away with the beret was his kind of obsession with Kurosawa at the time. Uh, he said, I almost became a samurai myself. So I wonder if part of that was, you know, anytime somebody goes through a life change, there's often this sense that I have to not only break with the past, but I have to repudiate it, almost like a religious conversion. Mm. So I, I wonder if that was part of why when Bergman looked back, he kind of had to disavow the Virgin Spring because he wanted to say that was a dead end. I shouldn't have been going that direction. So, yeah, that was a bad that was a bad idea. But but even that story is a little bit of listening to your own critics and critic being yeah. his wife's, you know, so it's like partially like I really think this movie is great and interesting. So it's like I 
he's dead, so it doesn't matter. But like, I want him to embrace this movie too. But I also want him to move in the directions that he did because I want Persona. I want those other, the, you know, those other films that I have seen and not seen. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I find the relationship. I think another reason, and this again goes back to listening to critics. That's why I think this felt like a theme in this movie. Is another reason he brings on the screenwriter is because she had done historical. Mm-hmm. things before and there were criticisms of the seventh seal being sort of historically yes. inaccurate so it's like well this is my cover i'm bringing in this other person and they're going to make sure that that this has that this doesn't fall into the traps that apparently the seventh seal falls into yeah and he he'd also collaborated with her on brink of life and, and sawdust and tinsel so yeah they, they had that that uh, working working relationship before as well so. so my first impression when i started watching this movie was oh this feels at first, I was excited because like this feels like a continuation of kind of the vibe of the Seventh Seal. You have this medieval setting, this particularly late medieval Swedish setting. Um, it's clearly going to be centered on religion and religious questions, which I really liked. I, there's also a similar cast. I mean, you have Max von Sydow at the center of both of these movies. I did not recognize Gunnel Lindblom as the same actress from the seven because she looks so different in this once it once it appeared once i i realized it i was like oh this is so clearly the same actress but she is pretty transformed in this movie compared to the uh compared to the seven seal yeah you know the 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 other thing i before we get too far into it sam the other thing i meant to say at the beginning was uh you may recall one of the reasons that i wanted to talk about this film today uh was because of ang lee's response to the film so I didn't want to touch on that before. And also, I also want to note that I had totally forgotten this about the film. There are two significant scenes involving food. I thought about uh, that. So, or three scenes, actually. So we can talk about that. But Ang, Ang Lee describes, and I'm not sure what year this was, but Ang Lee describes, um, I think he may have been in film school at the time. Yep. And, uh, you know, he goes into the cinema to watch this film and 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 it, it, it ends and he just sits there. And he and he watches it again, right? And he says um, he talks about biographically that he actually had a very stern father, the way Bergman did. Um, but he said when he watched the film, he said, "How dare someone ask the question where God is with such beauty?" I just couldn't get over it. I stayed on the on in the cinema watching it one more time. I think the world changed for me ever since. That was the epiphany for me, not as an artist, but as a person. I became a thinker. Um, you know, so I, I love that story about, you know, what's what what film changed your life or what film kind of changed your mind. Now, he also talks a little bit about what he learned stylistically from the film and the uh, the shot of Tori from behind towards the end as he's praying to God. Uh, that had a in, in, that influenced Ang Lee's own visual style as well. So as we're talking about a film that you have Bergman repudiating at the same time, you have a filmmaker, Ang Lee, who feels very close to Bergman. Uh, and in fact, is highly influenced by this film, at least a couple of different ways. So I want to say, I'm going to invoke a principle of the new criticism. Artists are not experts on their own work. Yes. Um, yes. So the uh, we trust the tale, not the teller. Um, the, uh, the other thing that he said about it, which is very true, is that this is a movie that is simultaneously so quiet and very violent. Like, and, and it makes me think about even something like Crouching Tiger, where when I think about the battle scenes in that they're often happening in very quiet settings mm-hmm. and it's like oh and, and and you know i love the interview on criterion with ang lee he talks about like sometimes when i'm making a movie i just can't help but steal something from him it's like i just want to do the thing he did there i want to do i want to do here so um 
at the same time that I was like, oh, this feels like the seventh seal, I also realized how different it is. Um, in a big way, this is much, much smaller than the mm-hmm. seventh seal. It's smaller in terms of it's a much smaller cast, its scope, its scale. The stakes of this movie are much smaller. I mean, the seventh seal literally is the plague, the end of the world, potentially in the late Middle Ages. And this is a s- small story about a family and uh uh, a tragedy that begets more tragedy in a family like like the it's it's so it's very different in that way and and to hear you talk about like kind of directions he goes later like this feels maybe like like you can see pieces of like getting smaller to a certain degree mm-hmm. um you know so so maybe this is a transition movie in that way as well the other thing that i found interested interesting in this movie is that although this is a movie that is deeply deeply about religion um uh, isaacs and the um the screenwriter was very interested in kind of the transition from pagan to Christian and sort of the conflict between those. So there's a lot of spirituality, a lot of religion in this movie. This seems to be a movie that exists in the physical world. Mm -hmm. Um, There are not uh, with a few poignant exceptions. There's not a lot of like, uh, spiritual representation or like spiritual things have there are people who are viewing the world through religion potentially but the world that we see on film doesn't necessarily feel like like you're seeing the hand of god at work or something like that right so um where in the seventh seal i mean you literally have death personified right like there is a, a there is a spiritual presence in that you know whether that's real or perceived you know so so, so this feels um this feels much smaller that way, which led me to the question because we talk a lot in this uh, in this podcast about sort of the difference between like fate and destiny or choice. Mm-hmm. Um, so my question for you is: When you think about this movie, um, do you do you feel like the events of this film happen because they are fated to happen, or do you feel like this is uh, there are? Um, do you feel like there's like there are benevolent or malevolent forces shaping things, or does it feel like this is a world where cruelty and charity happen, and this is something that happened? <laughs> I I think the best answer. Okay, I think the best answer to that question is that this is a world that once again demonstrates the character's destiny, because I think that what happens to Karin happens to Karin because um despite her uh, innocent exterior. Uh, she uh, she has certain proclivities that lead to her downfall. Um, Absolutely. If she were not, um, well, on the one hand, you could say when she first stops and sees the goat herds, you know, so she's she's innocent. She has no idea that these guys pose a threat. But she's also proud and she's vain, and she and 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 it, it, it's really not clear at what point during that quote picnic scene, at what point they're going to turn against her and and she's going to seal her fate. Now, I'm also going to change my answer, however, and point out that what happens dramatically is even as she is tempting them with all this tale about how rich she is and how fine she is, um, the turning point is when the uh, the toad appears out of the bread. Mm-hmm. And the toad, of course, is a representation of the evil power of Odin that Ingeri has invoked. 
So, so then there's the other answer to your question, right? Which is no, it was faded because these malevolent forces are at work, uh, and that's and the, the toad shows up, and we think of the invocation of Odin, and now we know that's why she's in trouble. But what I'm going to say is that's that's the the that's the film is holding the answer to your question um, in intention. Yeah, I you, agree. Because I you agree. can argue you can argue either way or both ways. Yes, I, I, I agree, but there is, and, and I'm saying this as a positive, there is something about the way he makes this movie where I do not feel the, I don't feel the hand of fate or destiny in this at all, mm-hmm. um, which, which is which is a positive because I feel like the characters feel those things and they feel the weight of this, But but when I watch the events of the movie, it's like, it feels like, well, these things definitely happened. But I don't know that it's like they were it's like the movie was was on a track to it had to happen that way. Other than it is a movie called The Virgin Spring, where it's like it has the movie sense of fate and destiny. But I don't feel like and and maybe it's the it's his light. It's his light use of score that 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 mm. pull, cause score, I think, sometimes implies uh, yeah. kind of destiny a little bit because you sometimes get the tone in the score before you get the events. And yeah, I think yeah, yeah. pulling that out, which I think makes this movie really powerful because this movie wants you to think about why did this happen? Did God or Odin make this happen or let it happen? Or are those things not things at all, but these people don't know how to understand the world in any other way. It's really well done. Yeah. <laughs> um. So this film opens with, uh, you're getting to this question of religion, with, with, with Ingrid uh, lighting a fire, right? So, like, oh, it starts in the oh, in yeah. a dark screen, and you see her like literally blowing life into the coals of a fire, and we see her kind of invoke Odin. Uh, now, what I love about this is that before she does her, as she does her, she opens up that hole, the the like chimney hole in the ceiling, which becomes you know, and and when she's calling out to Odin, she's calling through that. And that door or hole or I don't know what you call that thing in the ceiling mm-hmm. um, becomes this image that keeps coming back, right? So we see Ingri when she calls out to Odin. We see the boy when he's sort mm-hmm. of racked with guilt. He's looking up through that hole. Um, the prof- uh, the professor, I'm only calling him that because that's what uh, Frida calls him. I don't know who he is, <laughs> yes. but the guy who seems like he is more of traveled the world a little bit more. He uses the door as this metaphor, right? Mm-hmm. As he's talking about the smoke trembling, even though it, it, cause it doesn't realize that out there, there's just more space to, uh, to travel in uh, before Tor attacks the herdsman. He sits in that he sits in the manor hall waiting and we see morning waiting for morning light to come through that window. And even when he kills the the middle herdsman in the background, as he's pushing him into the fire, you see that that opening in the mm-hmm. in the ceiling. So it is such an interesting thing because it, you both you see people looking out uh, in different ways, I think, looking out to God potentially yeah. out there, but that's also the window for God to look in, right? To to see in. So um, I, I found it really interesting how how often I, when I rewatch this, I kept paying attention to every time we either in the background or in an intentionally framed just a shot of that um, is a really interesting symbol to me. Well, also in in a world without a church or a cathedral, you know, uh, we know the people. Some of the people on this farm haven't even seen a church. You know, mm-hmm. the professor kind of describes the church to them. You know, I think that's that's the only 
that's the only kind of vertical space you have to refer to. You know, it's both a natural space and, as you said, it could be suggesting a supernatural as well. And the idea of God looking in uh, is, of course, very important later on when Tari yes. has his confrontation with God. God, you saw this. You were witness to this. So it, it kind of, yes, it's a gateway that, uh, that works both directions. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a movie where we get, um, and again, this is this is this is a little bit of like, um, uh, kind of a different take on Rashomon. This is this is a thing where we, this is a movie about people watching events yeah. because when we get to the the rape and murder, Ingeri watches and the boy watches and maybe God watches, right? Mm-hmm. Like like there's all these questions about watching and not intervening or could you intervene or, or things like that um so so i think i think that that idea of the the roof opened up to the sky is really interesting so we go we move from ingery invoking odin to this great cut to um tor and uh moretta praying to mm-hmm. this great late medieval crucifix kind of the, the you know the the anguished body of christ on the cross um, we see Tor yawn during the prayer, which which is a great acting moment by Vonsado because it feels very natural. But you're like, they mean that to be there because you would not accidentally put a yawn into a movie. So there is the, so and then we see her like um, punishing her flesh by pouring hot candle wax into her, hand, her hands. So in those two little moments, we get a picture of maybe the degrees to their devotion or religious, yeah, yeah. you know, religious feelings that she is definitely far more uh, devout to an extreme. And Tor is maybe uh, going through motions a little bit. This is part of his day, but this is, but, but maybe there's a little bit difference to how he thinks about or understands God. Well, I think that's a really important point, Sam, because, you know, I, I think that he does, he operates a kind of middle position in terms of, um, you know, if if you have on on the one extreme, you have paganism, you have Odin, you have Ingiri, uh, you have the, the the bridge keeper, and if on the other extreme you have um, you have you have Christianity, you have Moretta, um, presumably you have Karin. Um, he's kind of he's kind of a middle figure, and there's a sense in which you know I I know we'll talk more about this when he takes his vengeance, but. There's a sense in which that the vengeance that he takes comes very much out of a um, of, of uh, the, the the pagan culture that mm-hmm. is still kind of in tension with the Christian culture. So he's very much a, literally kind of a a figure with his with his feet in both worlds. And even that high chair that he sits in corresponds to the high chair that the gatekeeper sits in. Mm-hmm. So I so I, I I think he's really fascinating in that respect because. He's clearly not fully Christian, and he's not fully pagan, and he's sort of wavering between those two those two options. So it's interesting. We talked about how Ola Isaacson, the um, the screenwriter, was interested in the conflicts between Christianity and paganism. Bergman's drawn to this story because he wants to think about guilt. Um, <laughs> now I'm curious. I, I assume because it's not that long. I assume you re- you read the uh, the poem towards daughters in the Vange. No, actually, I did not get to it. Oh, you didn't? Okay, well, no. it's you can find it on Wikipedia, like a, a version of it. It's it's relatively short, so it's really interesting because, um, the that poem is very very much about guilt and not at all about the the conflict of paganism Christianity. Uh-huh. What's um? It's uh, it's the the he's def. They're definitely taking a lot of liberties with saying, well, there's something here, but we want to do something else. I mean, it it reads like a very dark uh 
fairy tale almost, mm-hmm. or, you know, or yeah, I guess fairy tale is probably the right word or folk tale. Um, it also kind of reads like a Greek tragedy. There's, there's sort of a, an Oedipus um, uh, kind of feel to it where the three hurt in, in the story, there are three daughters who go to the church and they encounter the three herdsmen who refuse the advances of the, of the herdsmen and they cut off their heads. Mm. Uh, the herdsmen cut off their heads and then um, tore uh, like in the story, they, they come to sell the, the, the golden shifts and they're recognized and tore kills the first two. And the second one or the third one, he questions and realizes that those three herdsmen are actually their three sons who were sent out into the world and kind of abandoned out into the world. So there is this sense of like, they didn't realize that all of this were family. So the guilt in part comes from, them or tore tore as a father kind of abandoning these sons and then um kind of how that comes back to haunt his house so there's very much a uh i mean oedipus is not the right thing but that sense of like not even recognizing family and this sort of maybe dark fadedness around this mm-hmm. so so there there he so that that story is clearly about the theme that that bergman wants to talk about um one of the things that i love in this in the this story is the pairing that we get between Karin and Ingeri, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're they're both um Ingeri, like like I'm trying to I was, it's interesting watching this thing about what is her relationship to this household? Because she doesn't seem like Frida where she's just a servant. She seems like she was taken in. So yeah. she's like somewhere between like a servant in the household and a, a stepdaughter or somewhere like an adopted daughter, but definitely not the same as Karin. <laughs> Yeah, I think in our terms, we, we we would say she's some kind of a foster daughter that they yes. brought into the house for whatever reason. Yeah, and, and we get this 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 sort of mirroring um, or opposite thing with them, where visually, I mean, they they if you just set the two actresses next to each other, they are dark and light. Their hair, they're you know, uh, they're dirty and clean. They're uh, virginal and pregnant. They are <laughs> pagan and Christian. They are put upon and they are spoiled. You know, and and um. Uh, and what's interesting is you're thinking like if this were a if this were a Disney story, Ingeri would be the main character. She's the Cinderella character who's like looked down upon in this house and like well, and she's the one. Um, but this that is not the story that this is not a Disney movie. This is not the story that that's being told there. And as you pointed out, when we f- start to meet Karin, we meet her as innocent and pure, but we also meet her as spoiled and lazy and manipulative and dreamy and materialistic and demanding and boastful so again it's it's setting up to be like well this is not the like innocent of our the, of where this story is headed but it turns out she is the one who is the victim in this story so like that is also a really interesting choice i think yes. yeah she's the daddy's girl as well the other the other contrast between the two girls i would note is that uh, ingeria is fire and uh, karen is water um, oh, sure. which may account for why Ingerian ultimately becomes uncomfortable in the gatekeepers, uh, in the bridge keepers house, you know, because, uh, that is a place filled with water. I would also say that, yes, there's also that deep similarity between the two girls and that, um, Karen is no less interested in men than in Geary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we don't know exactly what's going on at the dance the night before, but everybody knows, especially in Geary, that Karen is sleeping in because she spent too much time dancing. And 
Um, this is making some assumptions, but some of the things I read about the film seem to suggest that this was, these are speculations that the, um, the uh, guy that they meet on the way is potentially the father of Ngiri's child and also the guy with whom Karin flirted the night before. So there's a rivalry and he may even be Simon of Solsta whose goats have been stolen by the goat herds. Oh, I didn't think about that part. I, did, I, I didn't pick up on that, but at least one article that I read suggested that was his identity. So I, I, don't, I don't know. Well, I would say the movie definitely wants you to speculate that he is the father of, of Ingeri's child because yeah. there is because because um Karin is explaining when they're when they're having that conversation like well I was trying to I, that conversation was about me seeing how we're going to care for this child of yours like so there's like there's something that there and I will say Ingeri also this is another moment of watching right she's like I saw you two in the barn and we don't fully know what she saw in the barn so there right. could be right. implications of like more than flirting there to so 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 I, I think it, it raises even the potential question of like how in fact virginal is Karen like she she both is and maybe is isn't um there there's at least questions about that um which okay which led me to one of the, the things that I thought so much about as I was writing notes for this um which is that this is this story about about this the the um the rape and murder of this prized or your or, prize daughter that's a weird way to say that but but in this household right um and then there's all these hints about maybe there is a larger deeper um maybe darker existence around some of this stuff and i thought to myself man this kind of feels like twin peaks right like there's a little bit of laura palmer in Karin. again that's an overstatement but it's doing a similar thing where it's like okay we're we this is a story about the murder of this young girl but it's pointing to saying maybe there's some other stuff here, which made me think about like, um, has David Lynch ever talked about this? I know he's a Bergman fan, but has he ever talked about <laughs> this movie? Because uh, there are other moments where I'm like, oh, I bet Lynch would have loved this moment in this movie. That's uh, I, I'm not aware of that, Sam, but that's an interesting speculation. However, this is the time perhaps for, for us to note that The Virgin Spring was remade um, in 1972 by Wes Craven as The Last House on the Left, um, which is interesting because Wes Craven has his own sort of Christian demons that he's, that he's dealing with, so to speak. Um, but, you know, one, I, I love the idea of the Lynch connection, and I'm very surprised you got there before I did. That's excellent. Um, but, you know, one of the things I wanted to say is, is as we were talking about this kind of internal drama, emotional, psychological drama between the two girls, the young women. Um, one of the things I want to note about the film is, and I think I think in this respect, maybe it it outdoes The Seventh Seal, but I, I'd have to go back and rewatch The Seventh Seal. It's been a long, long time. But you have a film that you, which on the one hand is so clearly, um, simple, certainly symbolic and maybe even allegorical in some of the terms we've been talking about with paganism versus Christianity. But at the same time, has I think such interestingly developed characters that you know these these characters are not. I mean, some people have compared this to a medieval morality play, right? In in terms of in terms of some of the allegorical elements. But the medieval morality play is uh, there's not what you would call depth of characterization. Um, whereas this film, I mean, these characters are 
are really there's a, there's a lot to explore with these characters, and um, so I think what we've just been talking about with the two women is is a good example of how this is um, again looking forward to those chamber dramas that Bergman uh, in which Bergman digs so deeply into the internal psychology of his characters. You can see that he's kind of going this way and realizing he needs a different dramaturgical form in which to do that kind of exploration. Let me ask you another question, and this is this is a speculative why question. When Karin is sent to go to the church, why do you think she she requests Ingeri to go with her? Is that an act of kindness for Ingeri because she says, "Well, she never gets to go anywhere." How about, or is there something else behind her bringing Ingeri with her? Again, I don't know that the, the movie doesn't tell us, and the text doesn't tell us anything. But I think that's the, it's interesting that she's the one who makes that request, and I'm not sure whether Ingeri really wants to go or not. She definitely, when they get to the river, wants Karin to turn back. But but yeah, I mean, like when I rewatched, I thought, well, that's it's interesting that. Ingeri isn't sent like, well, you should go with her so she's safe, but instead it's Karin is asking for that. Yeah, it, it, it is interesting, and some critics have actually criticized this element of the film. It's interesting that given the setting of the film, that there's no um, there's no conversation or concern about safety. You know, the, the, I mean, the idea that, that Karin would be safe riding by herself to the church in this particular time period of history seems very odd to me. But yeah, you're right. I mean, Ing Ingrid is not asked to go uh, to 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 uh, um, to to be help protect her. I, I think it's the classic move of a spoiled brat who realized that she's been kind of not very nice to Ingrid. And is there some way I can make it up to her? She also knows that Ingrid has seen whatever happened at the dance last night, and she's trying to mollify her. At least yeah. that's the way I think about it. That 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 makes sense. I, I will say we also get another later on in the movie when when karen doesn't come home the father says to the mother this is not the first time that she has stayed in the village without permission so there is the again yeah. it, it points to like there's more to her than than we're seeing I, I, it's really a rich characterization okay so then we get to the cabin by the river or the the, the bridge keeper's house or whatever this is and ingrid clearly clocks this right away as a a dark place and wants to wants Karin to turn back. Um, she says, you know, I, let me take these further. Right. So crossing that river seems to be symbolic. That yeah. house seems to be filled with uh, not only this old man, but this old religion. Um, again, if I'm thinking about Lynch, I just assume the inside of this cabin is red. <laughs> um, you know, it's black and white, but I assume it's red. So he shows her the sort of charms and spells promises her powers of sight and, and sound in different kinds of ways. Um, and then there is this moment, like I said, this movie does not have a lot of supernatural elements to it, but there is this moment, which again, feels a little Lynchian to me where she runs out of the cabin, runs across the river and then runs away. And all of a sudden the old man is standing there and there's no way for him to have gotten there. Mm -hmm. She's, and, and it's, it, it's, it's a really quick thing, but, but like, I, I kind of had this yeah. jump when I saw that of like, Oh, I don't like this. I don't, you know, in, in the way Lynch movies will, will like put something in the frame where you're like, I didn't, I didn't like that that was there because that's, that's the first like omen of a power beyond the physical in a kind yeah. of way. Um, and, uh, and I think that's, again, it's not commented on, it's not lingered on, but there's just this moment of, if you thought things were going to get dark, if you thought Ingris, Ingris had these fears, it's like, yeah, this is not going to, what, what happens from here is not going to be good. Yeah. 
And, but, but it also sets Ingri up as somebody capable of some kind of um, redemption, because mm -hmm. even though, you know, you would expect, based on what we've seen from her earlier, that she would embrace the opportunity to uh, collaborate with, it, with the old man. And, you know, there's speculation that maybe among the charms or some kind of abortifacient, you know, there's something that's going to deliver her from her from her pregnancy as well. And so the fact that she flees from this and there's even that moment when, you know, it, it's a nightmarish thing. She can't get the horse untied, you mm -hmm. know, so she can't she can't get on horseback. And then you have her, her running and that's where you get the Rashomon, yep. uh, the, the real strong Rashomon quote right there, tracing, trailing her through the through, through the forest. And that's where you kind of begin to see, you know, the, uh, the freeing up of the camera and Sven Nyqvist kind of beginning to make his mark. And, 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 you know, and it really, it is a nice, it's not just a quote of Rashomon, but like now we're in the forest. Now we're going to have the, the, the rape and the attack and the murder, which is a central piece of Rashomon, right? Like, like it's like, we're actually entering into Rashomon in a kind of way. Um, and we'll see later that this movie is not going to be a debate about innocence in the way Rashomon is, but it's more of a debate about people talk about guilt and like, cause we're going to see multiple people claim guilt for this, mm -hmm. um, which is very interesting. So um, this is one of those places where the scene is so violent and so quiet. I think Ang Lee, this is one of the things he was talking about uh, along with the revenge is like, it's very upsetting because um, there's nothing stylized about this. It is, it really just becomes this kind of violent attack and Karin is silent until afterwards, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And then that's when they that's when they kill her and and rob her. Um, so we have Ingri watching, the boy watching, potentially God or Odin watching. We're also in that position of watching, like um, in the I don't know if you watched the the little Bill Hader thing on Criterion, mm -hmm. um, but he talks about like part of the power of this is like most movies would cut away once they've right. established, okay, you know what happens, but Bergman's like, nope, you're going to watch this because I want you to think about this because this is going to matter later on for when you're thinking about in totality what we're talking about. Then we have the herdsmen leave it, but they leave the boy behind and he go, uh, there, uh, there's something really powerful to me about him attempting to bury her or giving her a ritual burial of like mm -hmm. i am sprinkling dirt on her to you know because that that also speaks to this kind of potential paganism as well like is there i don't know uh you know kind of norse norse beliefs about burial but there is this sense that that he has given her a burial at least in maybe the greek sense of of a yeah. I saw that of antigone or something like this she gets mm -hmm. the ceremonial burial at this moment but but it's it's interesting that yeah he he puts on he throws some of the dirt on her but then a little while later it starts to snow mm -hmm. and and it's almost like you know one critic suggests it's almost like is that god's burial for her you know as mm -hmm. the snow comes down so it's it's a very poignant scene as as the boy sits there and i think that you know it, it it's a really key scene in terms of what happens later on when tori takes his his revenge is you know how how culpable do we consider that boy to be uh, as well? And we, and when Ingeri's watching, we see her holding holding a rock, which she eventually drops or it falls from her hands. And what's interesting is she and she gives an interpretation to that of like I I had that as if I was ready to attack them and then I didn't. And I, when I watched it, my sense was well, she's defending herself because she too could be unsafe here, yeah, yeah. you know. So it's like it, she is retroactively 
even I think putting more guilt on herself because she she bears a kind of weight on her whether that's real or not. Right, and of course, and of course, yeah, and she, you know, she believes this is something that she has willed, mm-hmm. and so it's you know, it's it's that it's that that kind of trope, right? Uh, be careful what you wish for because it might come true, and so that's part of it too that she realizes, you know, <clears throat> or, or thinks maybe this is this is something that actually I've caused to happen, and we should mention. Along those lines, as long as we're talking about occult influences, we should mention we haven't mentioned the raven. Oh uh, yes, 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 very important. You know, which is which is a symbol of evil, a symbol of Odin, and we see the ra- the raven both before they come to. Before, I can't remember what it is before they first encounter the shepherd, the the goat herds. I think it is, or before. Oh, no, they come I, to I, the, I, 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 so this is where the raven comes in because it's really interesting. The raven, the first time you see the raven, is right before, right as they're getting to the the cabin at the river. Okay, yeah, yeah. The second time you see the raven is when they're going to find the body, yeah. and they're crossing the river, but the cabin is no longer there. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is also one of those moments where you're like, "Oh, I, I, I don't know, I don't know what to make of that." I, again, I love moments <laughs> like that because, because it, again, it's a movie that's not heavy, heavy in spiritual power acting in the world, but there are enough moments to make you feel unsettled by, I would feel better if I saw that cabin there, because then I can say, well, that's just a crazy old man in the woods. It's like, but now he's not there and it's not there, but the Raven's there. So yeah. Yeah. It's great. Um, so we go we go from the 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 rape and murder to back to the manor, and we see Tor kind of standing as a sentinel, waiting for Karin's return. A great low angle shot of Max von Sydow just as a Swedish king. Like it's it's kind of absurd and beautiful. Like I yeah. love it. I love that that look. Um, we see his kind of uh, cool or cold hospitality to the the travelers. Um, it's not necessarily like a super warm, welcoming thing, but he is like, okay, you guys can come stay in the manor house. It's warm there. I love when he waves them over to the dinner table. Mm-hmm. So we get a repeat of the dinner, but now they're sort of filling in those um, those extra seats. He prays and he prays the same prayer that Karin yeah, does. Yeah. And the boy seems to react to this. And you see the 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 middle brother grab his hand, mm-hmm. which is interesting because... What I don't know is, at first I thought, well, okay, so he recognizes this prayer, so he recognizes where they are. But if that were true, why would they try to sell the ship? So, like, it's just he's just trying to get his brother to calm down because he's recognizing we've heard this prayer from this girl that got attacked. They're not connecting it, right? No, it, this is back to our, maybe this is back to our, our conversation about fate. They don't believe in fate. This just seems like a this seems just like a coincidence. And of course, you know, the even the composition of that scene is almost very, it's very Last Supper-like, right? Mm-hmm. The, 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 the horizontal uh, iconography of the scene. And of course, significantly, you have the younger brother who has both vomited back at the picnic, and he vomits here as, as well. So he has a literally visceral re- reaction to what's going on. So he is really kind of the expression of the embodiment of the guilt that the older brothers obviously don't feel. Mm-hmm. So, so the boy gets sick and he, they, they, the, uh, Frida puts him into, uh, into bed and he's staring up at the, the hole in this, in the ceiling, uh, the, the, the door in the ceiling, um, clearly contemplating everything that's happened that day. And then we get the, the professor comes in and makes his speech both about, you know, the, the smoke trembling at the roof hole as people tremble for fear of what they know and do not know. And then he gives him this this sort of image of hell but also being plucked out of hell and saved 
kind of by for no for no per, i mean it's not you're not plucked out because you have in his story because you have believed or because you have done this um what do you make of that speech i love it but i'm also like interesting <laughs> what's you know, going on and I, I i read four or five articles about the film and not a single critic dealt with that scene or that speech which which I which I find really interesting because it means that they didn't know what to make of it either. I I I think it actually offers a kind of ironic commentary um, on the mercy of God. You know that because he's 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 being let, the boy is being led into this nightmare scenario, and then he's told, but you know you're you're going to be snatched to safety at the last minute. Well, the other interesting thing and about not, and he's not. Yeah. The other interesting thing about it is when he's talking about the mountain of fire and the people writhing on there, he says, Oh, that's the place for murderers. Yeah. And the boy knows yeah. that his brothers and he is feels complicit as well, right? So so there is this sense of like I think in his weird way, the professor's maybe trying to comfort him, uh, but the boy realizes I might actually, I think I'm one of those people burning on the mountain. Well, and, then, and again, it's another case where you get to have your cake and eat it too, because yes, you can say, okay, so the fact that he is killed by Torre shows that he is in fact a murderer, but at the same time, Torre realizes that was the one thing he did that really went beyond the pale. That yep. He is culpable for that boy's death because the boy should not have been killed. So, you, you, so then you get the other version of the story, which is you know plucked from that day ultimately plucked from that danger so yeah. i think it's really i'm glad you brought that scene up sam because i think it's really a very important moment in looking kind of both directions in terms of the kind of the spirituality of the film it definitely weighs heavily in the middle of this movie so then uh we get maretta returning to the the hall when she hears the boy scream and she inspects the boy and clearly his brothers have assaulted him i think to keep him quiet um and this is when they offer her the the golden shift, and she recognizes this. And then this sets up Tor's uh, Tor's revenge, um, and his preparate the, the 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 sort of um, process of his preparation for for revenge. So, but before that, Ingeri comes to him, and this is where she confesses her guilt. She says, "Kill me first. I will this to happen." And then we get a, a, like fifteen or twenty minutes that are almost wordless in this yeah, movie, which yeah. is great. So. Uh, I have to say, I stood up when I was watching this when Tor starts to wrestle with the birch tree. <laughs> I was like, this is the most amazing image I have ever seen. You yes. have this enormous man. Like I, I, I had to look up Max von Sydow's height because I needed to believe he was seven feet tall. He's six four. He's a tall guy. Yeah. yeah. So, like you have him literally wrestling this tree that's framed at the perfect center of the screen. It's a wide shot. What's funny about it is is like it's both this powerful scene of like man wrestling against nature it's also shot like a chaplain scene though because it's shot wide in there so it's like it's 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 the opposite of a comedic scene it's the least comedic thing in the world but i feel like like chaplain would make a scene that looked like this where because he literally is like kind of swinging back and forth on it and just the way it's it stays in that wide shot for such a long time it's such an interesting striking scene everything is dark but the 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 trunk of that tree is so white and it's so, Oh, it's, it's great. It love it. It's also an image that uh, Tarkovsky borrows for the, uh, for the sacrifice. Uh, oh, the, yes. the tree and the sacrifice is, is definitely, I think taken from this. And yeah. And, and then what happens afterwards is you get this strange 
again, it's a strange amalgamation of paganism and Christianity, right? Because the birch tree is actually evidently a symbol of fertility, for what that's worth. So associated, you might say, in virginity, associated with Karin. And, you know, it's this pure white thing. And then he goes through this self-flagellation, um, which is intended to be a kind of a purification, but he's doing it with this kind of pagan image. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a, so it's a really odd mix of this Christian and pagan ethos at, at the same time. The idea that, you know, he's, he's going to launch into something that he knows he's, he's trying in a sense to sanctify it as a, as a kind of righteous act of justice. But at the same time, he's, he's engaging in the kind of a classic uh, Lex Talionis of vengeance. Well, and, and even the way that that shot, like I said, I said, Von Saito looks like he's seven feet tall in this scene, especially like yes. it's shot from this low angle and he's, he's standing there naked, like flogging himself and then washing himself. And you're just like, it is, it there, it is this like interesting, like purifying ritual. And it you really are aware of his body in a, in a, in a particular way. Uh, so from here, he sends Ingri for the butcher's knife, which is interesting because he's got his sword out to yeah. take the birch branches off. But it's like the sword is not the fitting tool for for vengeance. The butcher's knife is. They're um, animals. So, animals for the slaughter. That's right. So he goes into the hall. He inspects their bag. And it's such a heartbreaking scene as he's taking out. Because the opening of the movie, when we first meet Karin, we hear every piece of clothing described. Yeah. And we see him take every piece of clothing out, the stockings, the shoes, the skirt, all of these things. And, and, and then he goes and instead of just you know, having vengeance right at that moment, he instead sits in the high chair and, and waits for dawn, which, in, which also points to like, this is not a, cr- a crime of passion. This is not, he was so overcome with anger, but it's like, there is something calculated about this as well. Like, like it is, it is revenge, but it's going to be revenge um, in, in, in the way he wants it to be. Um, so we get the attack of the first two brothers. The first one is knifed in the throat. And is he up on the chair? Is that what he's on? I'm trying to remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, almost in like a crucifix sort yeah, of yeah, way. It's, a, it's very much a crucifix, yeah. yeah. Uh, the second brother is is stabbed and then burns in the fire. Yeah. Um, so. Which, you know, is all because either the, you know, the burning flames of hell or like a burnt offering or something yeah, yeah. like that. And then we see the youngest brother run to uh, Moretta. And yep. she embraces him because she recognizes his innocence in this. And Tor walks over, picks him up, and it's it's the most brutal of the deaths because it's not even with the. It's just like, it's like Tor has become an animal at this point. He literally just throws him against the wall and shatters his body. And then Tor ins- ins- Tor inspects the body, and this is where it's like the the waves of guilt start. You watch them rush over him as he's looking at his hands. Which also, in a way, you know, distinguishes him from the brothers because it's not it, it it's not a Torah's hands with with the knife, but it's this yeah you, as you said it's it's really that is the most passionate act in a way, and it, it is the most brutal one because uh, it's so destructive of the entire body. Um, so from here we get the household going to find Karin's body because so so once he kills the the brother that then he goes to Moretta and says we have to go, um find find Karin's body and it's interesting that the whole household goes mm-hmm. you know and and they're 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 sort of and it's interesting watching this watching them travel back through the woods which we've seen previously has a seventh seal feel to it of like the pilgrims mm-hmm. walking through walking through the woods um 
And as they're doing this, this is where uh, Moretta makes her claim of guilt, right? She says, uh, I loved her too much more than God himself. When I saw how she favored you, I began to hate you. Uh, it's it's me God wanted to punish uh, by this. I bear the guilt. And Tor says, you're not alone. God alone knows where guilt lies, right? So because I think he's thinking, well, these the people who perpetrated this are guilty. Um, Ingeri is claiming guilt. Moretta's claiming guilt. He's over overcome with guilt. So it's like there's a there there is there is more there is more guilt than 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 she can imagine at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so we get to the crossing of the river. Here's where the raven comes back and the cabin's gone. They find the body. Tor walks away and Angley talks about the framing of this scene in particular, which I also think is important if we're thinking about the presence of God. Because Angley says the way you're supposed to shoot this is with a camera up high. And the and the person speaking up into the camera as if the audience is in the seat of God watching this plea, and instead, he Tor walks away from the camera and is sort of walks into the background with his back to the to the camera and and makes this um makes this prayer to God, mm-hmm. um, which is really interesting because at one level, if you're in if you shoot it the way Lee says it, it would be traditionally be shot, because you're as the audience put in the position of God. <laughs> It, you almost feel like, well, God must exist because this person is, but instead there's, he almost looks silly and small, like mm-hmm. as he falls to his knees and pray to be like, and, and I, and I love what he says because he says, first he says to God, you saw it. You saw the death of the innocent child in my vengeance. You allowed it to happen. So it starts with an accusation, right? But then he says, um, I don't understand you. And yet I ask you for forgiveness. So, so again, it's sort of saying like, I, I'm at the point where I don't understand if he's this, if he is the transition figure between pagan and Christian, he's like, he's in a world that he doesn't understand and, and he's both accusing God and then saying, but yet I ask you for forgiveness. Now, again, there's lots of ways you can interpret and read these lines. And I wish I knew Swedish enough to be able to hear and understand how van uh, van saito is delivering these because these can these are it's i think it's a i think it's interesting to think about this so um, and yet i ask you for forgiveness i know no other way to make peace with myself than with my own hands i don't know any other way to live so again this is where i as i said at the very beginning of this this is where i feel like is this a story where these things are faded or is the only way people, these people can understand what's happening to make sense of it, to make meaning of it is to view, view the world, not as a random place where charity and malevolence happen, but rather these things have to be faded. There has to be something creating meaning out of this. So uh, that the, I don't know other, no, any other way to live. I don't understand you. Like to me, those are the questions that I think about when I hear it. What do you think about when you're hearing this prayer? Yeah. I, I, what I, what I find interesting about this prayer is that there are, there's a couple different directions you can take it in. Right. So, you know, he says, I know no, of no other way to make peace with myself. So you could argue that even though it's a prayer to God, he's ultimately kind of embracing his own ethic. And saying, you know, whether or not there's a God listening to this prayer, this is what I have to do in order to continue to live with myself. So so you could argue that ironically, the address to God is actually a construction of more of a humanistic ethos mm-hmm. by which he has to live. The other way to think about it, though, would be, um, and this is kind of the way I tend to think about it when I watch the film, is it's almost a Kierkegaardian moment. 
It's almost like I believe because it's absurd. He doesn't he doesn't have an answer. God doesn't give him an answer. And so you could argue that he says, okay, well, even in the absence of an answer, I am still going to, I am still going to believe. I'm still going to act um I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna act in the way that i know that i am supposed to act even if i don't understand why god wants me to act this way i know that i've committed a sin i know that i've transgressed and so i have to seek forgiveness so i think you can read it either way you can either read it as kind of an act of despair that gives up on, on religion or you can read it as an act of an affirmation of religion even though you're not getting the answers you'd like to get because because ultimately there is no answer to why has this terrible thing happened. And I think it's interesting the penance that he gives himself is that he is going to build a church here. And not only is he going to build a church with his hands, but he's going to build it out of stone and mortar, which as you pointed out, most of these people have never seen this because earlier the professor who's traveled the world says, Oh, you've never, you, there are churches like you've never seen. And he's describing essentially Gothic cathedrals. Yes. Um, And there is this, so there is almost this sense of like, if we're thinking about the transition from paganism to Christianity, there is also maybe this beginning to embrace this wider Christendom of like, well, we are going to become like those other people I have heard about who build these big churches. So, so even in that there, as if that's a stage in that transition, a necessary mm-hmm. stage is we need to also build a, a church of brick and mortar in this way. So I feel like that's also embedded in that penance. Um, so then the final thing that happens when they, they move the body of Karin, the s- spring bursts out and water starts to flow. And we see um, Ingeri wash herself in that spring and Moretta washes Karn in that spring. Um, this is the other big kind of spiritual miracle kind of thing that happens. What do you make of this? Because I think this is one of those where I wasn't ready for that to be the end of this, uh, this movie. And I'll, all of a sudden I also realized a way to read the title as virgin spring like oh literally yeah. it is a virgin spring um what, what are your thoughts of, on the the very end of this well you know what it, it's one of the most significant changes from the original ballad in addition to the creation of the character in geary who does not appear in the original ballad um the the spring uh moving the the spring to the end of the story as opposed to having it happen in the middle of the story um i think that's the, it, it means that rather than the spring symbolizing Karin's innocence or virginity, the spring actually ends up being God's answer to Torah's prayer. Um, and it becomes a symbol of grace and a symbol of, of absolution. So I think it's important that in Giri, she washes her, her head uh, in the spring and that's where she planned her spell. And she washes her eyes, which she used to watch the rape. And then she drinks from it, which is kind of a, a kind of a communion that is happening. So I think by moving it here and having those characters, especially Ingeri, respond to it in that way, it becomes a much larger symbol than just this is because, you know, there's a tradition of there are being these springs appearing where virgins have, have died. But it's be, it's more than that. It's actually God's blessing of Torre and absolution for the guilty. I also thought I thought a lot about Ordette at this moment too, of oh, like yeah. a movie of people talking about religion, talking about religion, and then they're encountering actually something yes. unexplainable at the end and needing to wrestle with needing to wrestle with that. Um, at the same time, okay, so the spring appears. So, so if I'm thinking about the text of this movie, that could be a spring brought about by the Christian God. Could that also not be a spring brought about by Odin? If Odin is <laughs> right, or is this just a 
a coincidence fluke of nature that they write their meaning yeah. upon. Like, like it's because, yeah, because like, like it's it's unexplainable, but there are multiple explanations you could give to try to explain the unexplainable, but none of them really make a ton of sense unless you buy into a particular system of saying, well, yes, this or that. So I, I really, I really uh, like the ending of, I like the pairing of that prayer with that, um, mm-hmm. uh, with, with, with the spring. We are, we are so over time. Is there anything else you want to talk about with this movie? Oh, it's just, just a little grace note. I have to mention that the, the butcher's knife that uh, Tori uses uh, that he slammed, that he, you know, puts down on the table. It's got a, a goat's head on it. Mm-hmm. So that's reference to the herdsman. It's a reference. Oh, to the, sure. It's a reference to the devil, and it's also a reference to sac- Old Testament sacrifice. So that, to me, that's that, that's a symbol that kind of points all different, all these directions that the that the the film has just suggested. Yeah, I think this is such a again, it's so much smaller than the Seven Seal, but it's such a rich film. Um, and and the more I thought about it, and and. Uh, there, there was so much. It makes me want to go back and watch the Seven Seal and say, "Okay, I need to revisit this and and think about what I think about that movie as well." Um, Barrett, what do you have for us for next week? Well, let me say, I think we've proven Bergman wrong about the film. Yes. Um, so next week we're going to go back to to food movies uh, after this little detour. But interesting enough, uh, we mentioned Kurosawa during this broadcast, so I'm going to take us to Japan to see um, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Uh, it also takes us into, we haven't done a documentary in a while, so it's food, but it's a documentary. So oh, I'm very excited. I, I saw this movie when it came out, but that was a long time ago. And it's, uh, it, and it's free on Netflix. Oh, very, very excited. Barrett, thank you so much for taking this little, uh, angly tangent to, uh, to watch this movie. It is back-to-back movies where we see, uh, frogs or toads though involved. Yeah, this with is food. True, so right? yeah, so there, there are some connections there. Um, this is a great movie, tons to think about. I get exactly what Ang Lee was talking about with a movie that makes you, makes you, forces you to ask questions. So thank you for recommending this movie. Thank you for having this conversation. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about Jiro Dreams of Sushi in the video store. Mm-hmm.